Uchthron, fellow speakers, uh, Dr. Bowman, thank you for that introduction. It's a great honour to be asked to participate in Machnav, a Gormila Mahagat Uchthron. I've been asked by the President to reflect upon the idea of recovering imagined futures in the Irish independence struggle and its historiography from the perspective of the summer, that important summer of 1921. We know what happened after that date, that summer of the truce then, but the protagonists at the time did not. They did not have our perspective. My colleagues will reflect on hope, class and gender, on labour, land and longing, and on freedom as personal for women's participation and purpose. I'm going to look backwards from that crucial summer of 1921 and to reflect on some futures imagined in the decades before it and during it. In June 1921, King George V opened the Parliament of Northern Ireland, and a month later, the military truce of July 1921 opened the way for the end of the British-Irish War of the previous two years. Settlement talks between Britain and Doyle representatives were anticipated all through that summer, right up to October. What possible futures beckoned? Looking back at that summer of 1921, the key shape I think we need to keep in mind is that British policy had already put in place an entity called Northern Ireland. This was prior to any ceasefire, prior to talks, prior to a future agenda with the rest of Ireland. Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith and William T. Cosgrave, countless volunteers in the field, are preoccupied in that summer by the hope of an imminent, as they see it, All-Ireland settlement. But British policy has already put in place the reality of a new six-county Northern Ireland. It would take a very brave man, as Edward Carson said to Boner Law, to take away Ulster's Parliament once it had it. At the British Cabinet table, the discussion is of a war to the death in Ireland or of a settlement. So the stakes are high in that summer, and the preference on the British side is for a settlement. As Ronan Fanning quoted Arthur Balfour in that summer of 1921, we've made our Irish policy on all fours with our European policy of self-determination, and which no American can say is unfair. That was the nub of it. American and international opinion of Great Britain could be satisfied by the structures put in place by the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. In foreign policy terms, that mattered to London. International horror at reprisals in Ireland was deeply embarrassing internationally. But if a coherent narrative of respective self-determinations on the island of Ireland could be told externally, particularly in the United States by Britain, then the later choice articulated by Lord Lieutenant Fitzalan, now it must be peace or war and no fooling, could be made, dealing with the other part of Ireland. 
De Valera's push for an assault on the Custom House in May 1921 was part of his expectation of imminent talks, a costly one. It reflected his desire not to be presented in peace talks as guerrilla gunmen, as depicted by the British. Ernie O'Malley and other fighting men and women in pursuit of the Republic failed to see the scale of the meaning of the border until some of them fought on the ground in what became the territory of Northern Ireland over the following year or so. This year, the state and others are commemorating aspects of the Irish past of 100 years ago. But we must recognise that commemorations are traditionally used by states to glorify their origins. What is being attempted by the Irish state and separately, though relatedly, by the president is a more innovative approach, an attempt in this decade of centenaries to acknowledge the past in all its diversity and complexity while exploring and reflecting on a national narrative. The desire, too, is to show empathy to those who opposed what the state retrospectively recognises as the National Revolution, and to address the endless recurrence of division around partition as an issue in every generation. We remember, but we also forget. As Patrick Modiano in the novella recently published in English as Invisible Ink put it, we can't remember without forgetting. Social remembering or commemoration is always a process of negotiation in a society. No living person now actually remembers what happened in 1921. What we call our memory of it is a complex mixture of what we have read, what we have heard, how the social and community relations and media we are immersed in choose at a particular time to represent that past. Our memories are socially and culturally constructed. History aspires to be something different, an attempt to explain what happened and how and why it happened and to whom. This, of course, raises questions about where the historian is coming from, ideologically, and how their ideology informs their historiography. The particular history of the border drawn in Ireland by the British Imperial Government in the Government of Ireland Act 1920, the consequences of that divide, the Northern Troubles, the debate on Irish historical revisionism, reflections on the shared capital of Irish political and cultural nationalism since the 1970s. These and other considerations shape the framing of commemoration by government and by president today. Shaped by what those over a certain age have lived through, and the historical cultural wars about commemoration since the 1970s, much of this is really not apparent for most people under a certain age in this society. Commemorations are easy for societies where the outcome of the past is not contested. But here, because of the fallout from partition's legacies, history is and has been the raw meat of politics and of our recent conflicts. It all relates back to the architecture put in place in that summer of 1921, when partition took place and a truce beckoned to settlement.
the shape that commemorations take can tell us more about the contemporary society than it does about the past it seeks to evoke. The revelations about the treatment of women and children born to them outside marriage over the past decades, the waking the feminists movement arising out of rage at the Abbey Theatre's marginalisation of women in commissioning plays in 2016, international developments. This decade of centenaries has had a focus unprecedented in previous commemorations on the role of women. The commemorative version of the past is always viewed through the rear view mirror of a future that did not exist and was unlived at the time of that past. In this case, the shadow of the treatment of women in independent Ireland. Social change in Ireland has been driven by women's issues over the last decades, and the need for that change came from the nature of the post-revolutionary society. That take from the present in commemoration or looking at 100 years ago was particularly evident in the 2019 RTE television series Resistance that dwelt at some length on the role of women in the revolution. Apart from placing women at the centre of the action, it addressed the pregnancy of one of the key figures while not married. It's inconceivable that the Irish media in 1966, the 50th anniversary of the Rising, would have wanted to cover such issues. In the 1960s, James Connolly was the figure of the Republican left, or the Republican left wished to focus upon, while more pious forces focused on a treacled, rather saintly version of Porrick Pierce. From a historian's point of view, trying to work out what actually happened at the time, Tom and Kathleen Clark might have been more captivating and revealing figures to focus upon. As we know from the Bureau of Military History and from the Pensions Archives, many fought in the Irish Revolution, but most people did not. No revolution in the world is so minutely documented. The revolutionary generation were brought up in the shadow of another revolutionary period, the revolutionary land war period from the early 1880s. This changed the ownership and class composition of rural Ireland. The providentialism of the Irish poor of the countryside has been seen as a consequence of famine trauma. The extraordinary rate of emigration the social cessation of formerly common subdivision of rented land, the revolution in inheritance patterns, all combined to create a highly class-stratified rural community by the end of the 19th century, I should say rural communities. The traditional Irish forms of Catholicism, common until the mid-century, around holy wells, places of pilgrimage, patterns and party wakes, have been ripped apart relentlessly and suppressed by the new monolithic and powerful Catholic Church after the famine, particularly the un under the influence of Paul Cullen, Archbishop of Dublin. This was a church which acted as broker with the British state and 
by the end of the century, enforcer of a hyper-pious sexual morality. Victorian, but with its own coloration. Roger Casement, in the 1900s, mocked the time that John Redmond spent in the House of Commons negotiating the exclusion of certain conventual establishments, convents, from British state inspections. The Catholic Church was well structurally embedded with the prevailing structures of power in Ireland before independence. Meanwhile, to go back to the 80s and 1880s and 1890s, the seemingly endless pause on home rule and the unionist pause in resistance to it in the years after Gladstone, from 1893 onwards, created a new more radicalised and impatient generation in Ireland. I teach a course in Queen's Belfast called The Politics of Irish Literature, and we read all of the radical writers of the 1880s, the 1890s, the 1900s. We read Joyce, Yeats, Hyde, Sigerson, Griffith. Uh, they're well worth reading and their ideas are extraordinarily interesting and often marginalised. Many of that generation were politicised during the anti-Boer War, anti-imperial protests and commemorations of the 1798 rebellion in 1898. <clears throat> I think my point is that 1916 was shaped by a small dedicated group who had a wider sympathetic cohort derived from those a decade older who'd waited for home rule for the decade since 1886. As the Tory project of killing home rule by kindness appeared to proceed apace, fear of a successful total absorption into a British imperial project, cultural no less than political, drove many of the key figures to revolution. And I think that's a really important point. Clearly, there would have been no British-Irish war from 1919 to 21 had 1916 not happened. It's also unlikely that anything other than the most restrictive form of home rule would have been on offer. Roger Casement wrote to his friend Alice Stopford Green in 1906 and 1907. He said he's convinced the Liberals never intend to facilitate home rule. Alice Green was the daughter and granddaughter of important figures in the Church of Ireland, a widow of the famous liberal British historian J.R. Green, and she was a key figure in the events of the years leading to revolution and indeed afterwards. Eamon de Valera, when asked years later to recommend a history of Ireland, suggested that people read hers. Her books were best-selling. They were distributed through the Gaelic League uh, in Ireland in the early 19-teens and into the 12s-13s. They countered the establishment histories of Ireland, mostly written by Unionist historians who endlessly iterated the Tory line that Ireland was not and never had been a nation except through English conquest. That seems scarcely believable today, but it was the daily mantra of engaged politics at the time. Stopford Green funded the School of Irish Studies in Dublin and paid for most of the guns in the Hoth gun running. 
At a commemorative event for casement in Casement Aerodrome in 2016, a speaker regretted Casement's involvement in Irish revolutionary politics. He felt that it undermined Casement's important work in Africa and South America and his efficacy as a model for NGOs in independent Ireland. I could not resist pointing out that there might not have been an independent Irish state to have an NGO policy uh, had uh, Casement uh, but for him. In pushing for revolution, Casement said, Africa will still be Africa in a hundred years' time. But like those I've mentioned earlier, he and many of the revolutionaries felt that they were at a turning point. In saying that, he was expressing the fears of the core revolutionary group that Ireland was perhaps on the brink of being finally successfully integrated into the United Kingdom before the First World War. By the summer of 1921, as the new parliament was opened in Belfast, many of those who had reacted to the prospect of some kind of Ulster exclusion before the war were dead. Casement himself, hanged, who tried to organise an Ulster Protestant resistance to the idea of Ulster exclusion. Sean McDermott, the former Belfast tram conductor, uh, with whom he had consorted in Belfast with Bulmer Hobson. As we know, all the signatories of the Rising were dead. So the truce came in that summer of 21 to a new leadership cadre who'd emerged since 16. The radical impulse that led to revolution had been started, arguably, by two young women, Alice Millican and Ethna Carberry, in their Belfast popular newspaper publication, The Shan Van Vogt. It started in 1896. All of the focus on history, and their argument was for independence by justification in history, that so drove the analysis of the revolutionaries, was inscribed in their journal. Arthur Griffith took over their subscription list for his United Irishman newspaper, the popular print in which almost every active revolutionary was involved. James Stevens said there was nothing in Irish advanced nationalism with which Griffith was not involved before the First World War. Maud Gone part financed it. Everyone with radical politics in Ireland read Griffith's newspapers before the First War. Futures were imagined for Ireland before that war, but the imagined Home Rule future had been a receding reality until the Parliament Act of 1911. Liberals did not wish to introduce a Home Rule Bill for Ireland, as they made clear when they won power in 06. They legislated for Home Rule in 1911 only because the changed powers of the House of Lords, put in place for purely British reasons, mandated it, and they needed Redmond's votes to stay in power. Redmond got an unworkable bill only because Liberals needed his votes. That was not the fault of Redmond or the Irish party. It was simply the limit of their leverage. The scale of Ulster resistance and British support from it, from the Covenant onwards, made it clear that some accommodation for Ulster would be found. 
This is clear from the interventions of Churchill and Lloyd George from within the cabinet and from the actions of all levels of the Conservative Party and the British Army from the Curra episode onwards. The Buckingham Palace Conference around the pre-war home rule situation makes clear how limited the scale of home rule on offer was. But the summer of 1921 was when that unionist resistance came to fruition in the shape of a Northern Parliament. Revolution is a process, not a single event. Yates in September 1916 asks, was it needless death after all? He reassumes his role as the national poet at Maud Gunn's prompting in the crucial use of the term our, our part to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child. In a sequence of poems, he reflects uneasily upon the transformative power of their actions. Images of Macdonough's bony thumb, the image of watering the rose tree, are presented as politically dynamic. Yeats was a political genius of a kind. He was not sure that he liked what had happened in 1916, but he understood the politically transformative power of the action of the rebel leaders and their executions and the politicisation of a new generation through those actions. Modern Ireland has difficulty with all of this, but the historical record does show that a vanguard of public opinion was decisively shifted, and this is reflected gradually between 16 and 18, though the events of the summer of 18 may have affected things as well. Why did the Irish Revolution return to the gun in 1919? A series of British cabinet and Dublin Castle political decisions had radicalised public opinion in Ireland, from the attempted introduction of conscription in the early summer of 18, I'm going back three years now, from 21, Irish men had fought for Redmond. The Gallipoli campaign disillusioned many of Dublin's middle class as they saw their sons go to death there. To quote from another song, better to die neath an Irish sky than at Sulva or Sudel Bar. The Irish public was a spectrum from committed unionists through liberal home rulers and Redmondite home rulers to committed advocates of complete independence. The Irish Convention of 1917 had shown that while Southern Unionists wanted a compromise in an all-Ireland frame, Northern Unionists had dug in on the demand for separate treatment. Though Lloyd George had offered an immediate form of very limited home rule after the rising in 1916, it was clear that Irish work on the home front and Redmondite sacrifices counted for little from the end of the war. Redmond's imagined future of a new dispensation between Irish unionists and nationalists who'd fought together in the war was just that, another imagined future not to be for most. The Marquess of Londonderry, who later became Education Minister in the new Northern Ireland, said that Ulster Unionist lack of acknowledgement of that shared experience and sacrifice on the European battlefields disappointed and astonished him. 
The so-called German plot in the late summer of 1918 alienated moderate nationalist opinion and further radicalised those who'd been earlier interned in Frangoch and were now arrested again. Lloyd George was busy at the end of the war in Paris and elsewhere. Ireland could wait by the end of 1918, but it didn't. It radicalised. That Walter Long, a political anachronism, even before the war, was given the chairing of the Imperial Cabinet Committee on Ireland after the war was astonishing. Or perhaps not. The high political decision by the Tory-dominated cabinet in London to greet with repression the result of the 1918 election and the establishment of Doyle Aaron was tactical. The best account of the following years is still Charles Townshend's book, The British Campaign in Ireland. From later on, the extraordinary number of diaries and memoirs from officials and politicians, some from within Dublin Castle, Mark Sturgis, Ormond de Winter, versions of the activities of Andy Cope, mean we can see very clearly and reconstruct the political calculations of the key actors at different times in those years. There is no mystery about what British politicians and officials intended by the summer of 1921. They're documented on file and in publications. Punishing rebel Ireland after the war had been subsidiary to a policy of providing Ulster supporters within the Tory-dominated coalition cabinet with an acceptable palliative. This was the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. The timeline is extraordinary. While the undeclared British war with nationalist Ireland proceeded from 1919 onwards, details of the Government of Ireland Act were being drawn up by Walter Long. Called the Fourth Home Rule Bill, it had naked and negated the premises of all earlier or all three earlier Home Rule Bills, and is best described as an act for the division of Ireland. The imagined unionist future of remaining in an all-Ireland within the United Kingdom that Edward Carson had sought was recognised as impossible, as it was clear by the summer of 1921 that Britain had made its choice. Extraordinarily, Arthur Balfour, who had fought parnellism tooth and nail in the 1880s and who'd built... Edward Carson's career through the Mitchellstown shootings of the 1880s in that process was still core to British cabinet decision making at this time. His lines are telling, behind Irish politics, behind the moderates, there is the real force making for change and that force always makes for independence, which this cabinet won't give. Women pervaded the revolution and the revolutionary process. Many had cut their teeth in the long and bitter war for the franchise, only finally conceded with great reluctance after the war. The women of Inunina Heron, those who'd been in the Gaelic League, in Common Naman, the Stopford women, Albina Broderick, the sister of the former leader of Southern Unionists, Lord Middleton, had joined other women like Kathleen Lynn. Irish Protestant women, many from unionist backgrounds, disproportionately joined the revolutionaries. 
the subscription list for collection of funds for advanced nationalist financing in Tralee shows the names of countless local Kerry women who'd emigrated to the US and subscribed from there. Dulcibella Barton, cousin of Erskine Childers, was like her brother Robert Barton, who, who was to sign the treaty, an advanced nationalist. But the rest of her family were unionists, and she paid a high social and personal price for her loyalties. Alice Milliken had alienated most of her unionist brothers. She'd no money. She was forced, if you like, to return to the support of her brother in the North after 1921. She described being in a partitioned Ireland as like being in a prison. As the truce beckoned, a new jockeying for position was now in place. Mary McSweeney was very close to de Valera, but she was in the United States, as were some other revolutionary women. But as the truce settled, it was the so-called fighting men who moved into the front line of politics. Outside church and state, free and on their own march, many of these men close the doors on their former female comrades. The fact that women now had the vote in 1921 did not mean the addition of large number of active female candidates to selection lists. A tenth of the Bureau of Military History witness statements are from women. Alice Stopford Green sold her house in London and moved to Dublin after Caseman's execution. She wrote anti-partition propaganda. She traveled to Belfast to retain contact with her friend, Francis Bigger. Her house on St. Stephen's Green was a hub of evolutionary activity. Arthur Griffith came to her for advice. Maura Comerford as her secretary was incredibly active. Her nieces in Fox Rock provided safe houses for the Doyle cabinet to meet at this time, as we can see from witness statements. She describes Colin stacking his bicycle outside. Numerous other women in the city were similarly engaged. In Unionist Ulster, we can see political strategy revealed most clearly through the fascinating diaries and letters of women, including uh, Craig's wife, Spender, Lillian Spender also, and others. These women who were close to the power brokers drove much of the politics but had no public role. Who could imagine in the summer of 1921 that within a year Griffith and Collins would be dead, that a whole new cohort would die after the Treaty of December 1921, that the aspired for republic with its radical demands would never be or never as a 32-county entity. In the novel Amongst Women, John McGahern shows the father as a force of post-revolutionary disappointment, oppressing and quashing the next generation. In that summer of 1921, still carried on by the hopes of a republic, many did not see the hard fates that lay ahead of them. Exile, poverty and loneliness in some cases. Some never got jobs again. Some fell into poverty and failure, remembering the four glorious years when they were young and free and fought, fought for Ireland. 
We look back now on that summer of 1921 and find it hard to understand that most nationalists at the time refused to countenance the idea that partition effected in that summer could be permanent. They just couldn't believe it. Those who had run the Dungannon clubs in 1907 the revolutionary circle in Belfast around Bigger's House or Dree on the Antrim Road. They did not believe that the Tyrone of George Sigerson and Patrick McCartan and Dennis McCullough would be permanently politically severed from the rest of Ireland. Sigerson's daughter, Dora Sigerson Shorter, never saw any future at all. Southern Unionists were uncertain, but willing to try to accommodate whatever emerged. The writer Barbara Fitzgerald, daughter of John Allen Fitzgerald Gregg, Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin, expressed her father's fears and their fears. Once the truce was put in place, all the conservative forces in the country were, for obvious reasons, anxious to maintain it at any cost. Summer soldiers joined up. People who had not fought in the previous two years signed up. The truce provided an opportunity for some to settle old scores, agrarian and other. In the north, or rather the recently established jurisdiction of Northern Ireland, the truce barely registered. The Northern volunteers, in fact, became more active. All of this strengthened James Craig's hand in his dealing with Lloyd George and later Churchill in demanding a full security apparatus, which at least on paper, Northern Ireland was never intended to have. Northern nationalists, Southern unionists, women, the rural and urban poor, all to some degree lost the peace in different ways. The futures they had imagined and hoped for were not to be. Kathleen Clark, who had spotted and hired Michael Collins, who had all the documents to keep the revolution running after the executions in 1916, lost her husband, her brother. She miscarried a pregnancy she'd never told Tom Clark about. After over a decade in prison, Tom Clark, years older than her, known in prison as Wilson, as Amnesty was pressed for by Redmond. Amnesty then returned to recover with the dailies in Limmercad, much to the family's horror, married her. Her fascinating autobiography was not published in her lifetime because it was assumed that she really did not matter very much at all. Of the brilliant female writers and analysts in these circles at that time, only Dorothy McArdle succeeded in print. What appears to matter in that summer of 1921, that summer of the truce, is the question of who will negotiate on the Irish side with Lloyd George. It seems clear that though the women had been the equals of the men in the struggle, they were not to be included in the negotiations. If you look at nominations for safe Sinn Féin seats earlier and later, you'll see the pattern begins to emerge quite early. Very few women at all. We have the gift of knowing what happened. In the summer of 1921, none of the actors knew where the future would bring them. 
in the extraordinary language of the Nestor section of James Joyce's Ulysses, a book concerned with all of these questions. There is that powerful riff on what are called the ousted possibilities. And I quote, Time has branded them, and fettered they are lodged in the room of infinite possibilities they have ousted. Recovering imagined futures from that summer of 1921 takes us back as well as forward. And the Irish Revolution has to be seen in the space from 1880 to 1925. It is from that time frame we can make sense of the summer of 1921 and all of that which it presages. Thank you. <laughs>